Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Carly Guyman. And I'm Shailen Back. We're your co-hosts. Today, we're excited to welcome the Commissioner of Family Services, Sherilyn Stinson, to the podcast. Sherilyn, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we jump into the questions, we wanted to introduce our guest to our listeners. Sherilyn Clark Stinson was born in Boise, Idaho. She graduated from BYU with a bachelor's degree in family science and went on to obtain a master's of social work from the University of Utah. And she began her career working for LDS Family Services as an adoption slash birth parent and clinical worker. In 2019, she was given the assignment of commissioner of family services. And this is exciting because she is the first female commissioner for family services. So we've been really looking forward to this conversation. She and her husband, Marshall, are the parents of three children, two of whom were actually adopted through LDS Social Services, and they currently have 13 grandchildren. They're all under the age of 15, and I thought this was so sweet. They call her Grandma Honey. (laughs) And it sounds like there's a story behind that. Well, my daughter started calling me Honey when she was in junior high school. She and two of her friends just started calling their moms Honey, which I thought was adorable. <laughs> That's sweet. <laughs> Reversal of roles. And right? so she just passed it on to the grandkids. Some call me Honey, some call me Grandma, some call me Grandma Honey, but it's my favorite title. It's yes. so cute. That is sweet. Well, Sherilyn, we, Carly and I had a difficult time knowing what to talk to you about. You are very multifaceted. and You come with a lot of experience and just a lot of different things that you can bring to this conversation. So one of the first things we wanted to start out with was we want to hear more about your journey to where you are now. What led you to be the Commissioner of Family Services? When I was invited in to visit with uh, Blaine Maxfield, who was the Managing Director of Welfare and Self-Reliances, I was clueless. And in fact, he said, you probably know why you're here. And I said, no, I have, I have no, I have idea, no idea, idea why I'm here. <laughs> and we proceeded to talk. And then he said, is there any reason why I shouldn't ask you to be the Commissioner of Family Services? And I was absolutely blown away. And that is my history. I never set out to be a career woman. I never had a plan to be anything more than my mother which I thought was fabulous as a full-time mother of a large family. And my road to Commissioner of Family Services really just started in life circumstances and the things that life throws you that you don't anticipate. And so I have always felt a little bit like I'm the mom of family services. I'm kind of a mom in this executive role. And probably being a mom is the best. Which uh, that perspective is pretty needed. Exactly. Uh It has its advantages. So I was the second mom in my family. I have a great love for children, and I studied family science and graduated with a degree in child development and family relations, married a wonderful man in the temple, and wasn't too long before I realized that that things were not going to come to me the way that I had planned and, and uh, was diagnosed with infertility. That was an interesting road. Because like a lot of women, we define ourselves according to the life we map out for ourselves. And as Latter-day Saint women, those roles are often given some guidance by our values and the role of motherhood and women. And modeled for us. And I'm modeled for us by wonderful, yeah. yes, by mm-hmm. wonderful women. And I had a fabulous model and, and my mother still do. Mm-hmm. And so I just assumed that the desire of my heart would be my mission in life. And as life goes, you know, that didn't happen. What I learned was, 
one of our biggest challenges is to let go and let the Lord bless us according to the variety of options that he has in mind for us and, and things I had never dreamed of were in time revealed to me. And one of those was adoption. Never had crossed my mind to be an adoptive mother. And, and that was our first introduction to then uh, LDS Social Services. And we were blessed with two beautiful children. Both came just before Christmas, just two years apart, and just as infants. And, and that was an incredible experience. I also have a biological son, which was, you know, an added blessing and miracle in my life. But it opened up that possibility of, gee, maybe one day I might want to place children for adoption. That could be a, a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. But my first commitment really was to be a full-time mom. And uh, I continued that until my children were into junior high school and high school. And our personal circumstances kind of gave a nudge toward that it would be helpful for me to contribute to our financial situation. And so I went to work for uh, LDS Social Services, later became LDS Family Services, and now the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Family Services or, mm -hmm. or Family Services. But the idea of being a commissioner was way off my radar. In fact, I went to graduate school in my 40s. I turned 40 in graduate school, so in, in that sense, I was a non-traditional student. That was kind of the first step toward kind of ensuring some security for our family. Mm -hmm. And I did that while my kids were in school, which was quite an experience. Quite a they journey. were still <laughs> elementary school. <Yeah. laughs> my school office was in my bedroom, and I would have to go in and shut the door. And I had a list of assignments on the outside <laughs> of the door. And I would say, when all of these are crossed off, you'll get your mom back. And, and I could hear them, you know, talking outside I'll the door. I'll come out when this is done. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And they would be checking the list. How's mom doing? Cute. So, sweet. you know, after about three years after I graduated, then it became apparent that it was time for me to enter the, the workforce. But, but again, my heart has always been in the home with my children. But when I was in grad school, I actually was doing an internship with LDS Family Services. And an assignment in a discrimination class required that we write a paper on discrimination in our place of internship. And it was a real challenge because I thought, you're asking me to critique my church. Yeah. <laughs> it's yes. not just my internship. Mm -hmm. It's complex. So I wrestled it. And, and what I came up with, I think through some inspiration and, and trying to wrestle this problem, was just to talk about what I called the glass ceiling at LDS Family Services. And it was quite fascinating because it helped me to kind of flesh out some of the, I wouldn't call them challenges, but realities uh, for women uh, who choose careers in the church, and especially if they choose a later career. Mm -hmm. Some of the unique features for Latter-day Saint women are our value of being home with our children if we can. And so it gives them a little bit of a later start and an opportunity to go up the corporate ladder, if you will, um, is a little bit restricted by that. Oftentimes, we do seek education for you know, what is, for me, was my primary responsibility, and that was for being a, a homemaker and a mother which I can't understate how critical and valuable and viable that role is for women when that opportunity is available to them. Mm -hmm. But in the process, I interviewed then commissioner of uh, family services, who is Harold Brown. And uh, I said, you know, I've as I know, an intern, as right? an intern, right? Uh -huh. And and you know, it's funny because as an intern, you can ask anything you want. And my <laughs> colleagues and the agency would say, "Well, take this question in; it's not going to hurt you." <laughs> but he was absolutely delightful, and he said, "I see the day when we will have a female commissioner of family services." And I just laughed. And I said, "Well, it won't be in my day." <laughs> so, oh, the irony! Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that the day that I visited with Blaine Maxfield, I called Harold Brown, and I said, "Harold, you'll never guess." <laughs> 
<laughs> so that was a great surprise to me and very, very humbling because I really did not have that ambitious mindset at all. I was just happy to serve. Um, I had wonderful experiences in adoption for about six or seven years and then into clinical and, and management opportunities that came to me. But, but this has been just a, an incredible experience and has taught me that women in the church and leadership are valued. Our voice is valued. I can't imagine being more respected and having my voice validated than in my church employment. It's been a wonderful experience. That's, That's wonderful to hear. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I was going to say. And maybe, Sherilyn, for those who are not very familiar with family services, maybe share a little bit what the commissioner does or what your role is. Yeah, so I interface with other divisions and other departments. Mm -hmm. I oversee a, an incredible executive council, which involves managers over the field, as well as operations at headquarters. I think I just mostly answer emails and go to meetings. <laughs> <laughs> but one of my responsibilities really is to provide vision for the field and to help them stay connected with the guiding purpose and the vision of family services. It's probably more of a high-level strategic responsibility than, than the grassroots direct service. But so important. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that we have someone like you in that role. What is the vision for family services, if that's something you can share with our listeners? You bet. And, and you're asking me to articulate it out of my <laughs> head. <laughs> we are guided by several guiding purposes and, and statements. First, that of the Department of Welfare and Self-Reliance, which is to love God and to love our neighbor. Uh, the two great commandments. The guiding purpose of family services, and, and, and this may seem a little lofty, but I believe it's true, and, and I've gained a very strong testimony of this, but our purpose is to help individuals to help prepare for the second coming by overcoming obstacles to keeping and making sacred covenants. And so the, the obstacles are our responsibility, obstacles of mental health and addiction, and recognizing that everyone that we serve also came here with a significant mission to help prepare for their Lord's second coming. But the obstacles that interfere with the vision of who they are and their ability to fully participate in, in that work is our great mission. Mm -hmm. Such an important mission. Thank you for sharing that. Sherilyn, we talked before this interview that we often interview leaders, we interview historians, we interview everyday women um, to hear their experiences of faith. And we also, in these episodes, are guided by suggestions of topics and questions, even from our Relief Society General Presidency, of topics and questions mm -hmm. that sisters have. Uh -huh. And one that we've hoped to talk about for a long time is questions surrounding marriage Certainly. and issues surrounding marriage. And we've been able to review a lot of the questions that the Relief Society Presidency has received on this topic. So we're excited um, to you know, have you, um, from your experience as a licensed clinical social worker, your perspective as the Commissioner on Family Services, just to talk with you about some of your observations and insights surrounding the issues that married couples face, as well as, as you've talked about, these resources that are available inside the church and elsewhere to help us be successful in what we know is the divine institution of marriage. So I, I appreciate your reference to the divine institution of marriage because it is divine. I love what the Savior said on his way to Jerusalem, his last trip to Jerusalem, and, and he was stopped by some of the Pharisees and asked him to address the topic of divorce. And he said, in the beginning, it was not so. And I've given that a lot of thought. And 
I believe what he was referring to is when the institution of marriage was presented to Adam and Eve, it was the divine celestial model of marriage, that this is what marriage is. This is what marriage was created for. And like everything else, like parenthood and everything else we do in mortality, we get to play in that sandbox and learn how to do this. <laughs> and we make a lot of mistakes. And there have been some societal adaptations, which include divorce from legal standpoints. But I think it's so important to keep in mind that marriage is a sacred institution that came from the realms on high, and it is something that we are learning how to do. That was a great insight to me that I often share with clients, that in the pre-mortal world, we were single, and we got really, really good at single. Marriage and doing everything that we learned with a partner is a new experience for us. And so if it feels awkward and difficult, there's a reason for that. Hmm. But we need to remember that it's in our internship, if you will, um, both marriage and parenting. Mm -hmm. We're interns in this process, and it is going to be a lot of work, and we're going to make a lot of mistakes. And I think it's important to remember that. I will never forget a, a young client who came in. She'd only been married for, I think, just a few weeks. And she was complaining about all of the challenges. And I started to describe what was needed to create a successful marriage. And she looked at me in disbelief and said, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. And, and I kind of looked at her in disbelief and like, <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> but I think sometimes we focus too much on if I'm worthy and I marry a worthy person or someone that I'm in love with, that we have reached the destination mm -hmm. instead of recognizing that, okay, now you're ready to engage in this course. You know, you've just simply yeah, chosen someone, someone to go through the course with. Mm -hmm. And this is when the work begins. Mm -hmm. It requires, uh, again, being single. I, I married a man who was single for a long time. He was almost 32 when I married him. I was That's younger. my husband, too. Okay. He was 31. <laughs> there are advantages to that. Yeah, mm -hmm. he was 31 turning 32. I was just 21. Mm -hmm. And he was really great at being single. <laughs> faithful, a good, faithful single person in the church. And we had a pretty rocky engagement, I'll just tell you. And it was just more of grinding of gears, of learning how to work together oh, absolutely. and understanding. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it was a mistake. And it was important to realize and understand that. And now I've been married nearly 46 years, and, and we're starting to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I really like what you said, that just because you encounter challenges or difficulties doesn't mean it was a mistake. Right. Exactly. I think that in and of itself can be really helpful, because I think sometimes when you do start encountering those difficulties within the framework of like, you know, marriage is the most glorious thing that I can do, and it will bring me happiness and joy. And then, like you said, when those expectations bump up against reality, that can be hard. It was fascinating to me to read an article by Dr. Bill Doherty, and he referred to the covenant marriage model, and, and he is not a member of our church. But he said the challenge that we have in the world today is an attitude of a consumer marriage, hmm. where there is not a commitment to, you know, this is the person that I'm going to make this work with, but we'll see how it goes. Hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if I don't like it, then— See how this works for me. Yeah, see how it works yeah. for me, and if it doesn't work out, then, then, you know, I'll dump it. You know, that's what we do. I mean, I'm the queen of returns. <laughs> and, if I, and my kids give me a hard time, you know, if the steak, the steak isn't cooked right, I send it back. You know? <laughs> but he said that's one of the challenges that we have is this mentality that is so selfish 
that, you know, if this isn't working for me, then, you know, I'm out. He said he was at a wedding reception um, where he overheard a family of the groom saying, well, she'll be a good first wife for him. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, oh, so that's an attitude. But with an eternal perspective of marriage, we know we have a long time to work things out. And we're not going to be celestial by the time we finish this life. I have two fantastic parents. They've been married now for 71 years. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, that's amazing. It's incredible. And they are so in love with each other. And I have had a front row seat observing these great models of that marriage. So sweet. And they've been through trials and adversity like everyone else. But through it all, I just see this devotion with them. And, and he's now 94 and she's 91 and he's got some health issues and she is taking care of him with compassion. Their humor is intact. And I just thought, you know, old age is a developmental stage for mm -hmm. a celestial kingdom. And I said, you know, mom and dad, the day's going to come when you may look down on those who check out early. <laughs> mm. But, you know, living to an old age, you are having this additional growth and development experience of mm -hmm. being a couple in old age mm -hmm. and learning how to do it with grace. And, and they are amazing. So marriages like our lives go through developmental stages. And I think it's very important to realize that. There are hard times. There's the dream phase. You know, it's funny, after six months of a really difficult engagement, our first year was just fabulous because we had done so much work mm -hmm. in that six oh, that's months. Great. But there are bumps along the way. You know, in early stages of marriage, it's so dynamic because often it's the same time, you know, one of you or both of you are starting careers. You're making decisions about families, mm -hmm. finances, where to live. Where to live. It's just very dynamic. And oftentimes the relationship kind of slides to one corner. When children enter the, the family system, if you will, you have to do some remaneuvering. And oftentimes a husband will feel like they've been pushed to the side a little bit because of the demands of children. And so learning to navigate those stages are very important. Health issues, you know, all kinds of issues, you know, midlife crises, things like this. And, and then there's the reality that each of you are doing a, an individual journey while mm -hmm. you're trying to do a couple journey. Yeah, yeah. that's and, an interesting. And, you know, what I may be dealing with, you may not be dealing with. And, and then there are, you know, just the realities of the baggage that you bring into the marriage, the expectations of roles, who does what. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to confess, after 46 years of marriage, I'm just learning how to mow the lawn because my mother told me, don't ever learn to mow the lawn <laughs> or it will be your job. Then you'll have to do it, yeah. And, and, and so sometimes you come into a marriage with some very traditional expectations of who does what. And that is not set in stone. That's not in the church handbook of instructions mm -hmm. of who cooks and, and who mm -hmm. diapers. And, and What is, is that we're equal is. partners, we're right? We're equal partners. Mm -hmm. And so many roles can be navigated and negotiated. I have wonderful colleagues who cook, and I'm so envious. <laughs> they are the ones who, you know, love doing that. And every situation can be different. But expectations going into a marriage are often one of the first big hurdles, just deciding what our roles are going to be. One of the things that I have observed that is probably one of the most significant things is that couples often fail to approach marriage and family with a strategic plan. It's interesting to me that any other corporation or startup business or, or any other enterprise is going to have a strategic plan. And yet I've come across very few couples who approach their marriage and their family with plan. My parents, again, were unique in that way, I believe, because from their first date, they were talking strategically about the kind of experiences they wanted for their family, how they wanted to raise their children and, and experiences they wanted to have. And these were things like, we want our children to learn how to work. Mm -hmm. And so, kind of identifying values. Exactly. Yeah. What are values? Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. And so they said, you know, then because work is important to us, then we want to build our dream home. And they were talking about their dream home on a working farm. And they did. And we did. <laughs> they raised <laughs> cattle, horses, and kids. So you probably <laughs> learned how to do a lot of things, even if you didn't learn how to mow the lawn. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. I did everything else. I did everything else. And mowing the lawn was my choice. It's my home gym, if you will. <laughs> I enjoy it. But I think oftentimes that is a very, very important thing because then your strategic plan is guiding you through major decisions mm -hmm. instead of my wants, your wants. Kind of rooting you through those turbulences. Exactly. For example, how are we going to budget our resources? Well, based on our, our strategic plan, you know, this is where we want to go. Education is important. Therefore, this is how we're going to address this. I have three children, as I mentioned, and the mothers of these homes are incredible. They're all very different. They have different personalities, mm -hmm. different circumstances, but they are all very intentional in their parenting and with their spouses who are all very supportive. And I think that that's an important term to apply to marriage and family is to be intentional. Mm -hmm. Do this for a reason. Make sure that you can identify guiding principles in your marriage, and then you're consistent, and your children see that consistency. Well, and it's like you said, even with family services, you have a vision, exactly, right? mm -hmm. And all of that kind of goes together, being strategic, being intentional, having a vision. Exactly. Those are all really good suggestions. Not For necessarily sure. easy to do, but not, not good, not easy. All good suggestions. Exactly. And, and you know what? I, one of the things I've learned as the commissioner of family services, and, and even before that, is the importance of operating according to guiding principles. If you can identify a principle then you know you're on the right track. And so families, children need to know what are the guiding principles of our family? What are the guiding principles of our marriage, you know, of, of a business or anything else? I just want to insert right here because I'm sensitive to this. Being in the, in the margin, if you will, with a righteous letter to St. Women Without Children for at least six years, I'm sensitive to know that not all women or men in mortality are going to have the opportunity to have a marriage or family. But I hope that they will find this information relevant. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because they will. I got a degree before I started to practice <laughs> in, uh, in counseling. And so I hope that women in the church don't feel marginalized because we talk about marriage. Mm -hmm. Because marriage is an eternal institution and it's an eternal principle. I think it's significant that Sister Nelson was an expert in marriage before she married President yeah. Nelson. And, and yeah. she is one that we look to as a scholar in, mm -hmm. in this area. And I hope that women of the church will embrace these discussions. Mm -hmm. I just kind of want to thank insert you. that. No, thank you. And we're, we're very aware, and, and church leaders are talking, I feel, more than ever, that we know that more than half of the women in the church are single. Maybe have been married at some point or will be, but right now... That's their experience. So we try to be mindful exactly, of that. Exactly. But relationship principles are universal. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to understand that. You know, one of the best preparations for my youngest son, and he has a fabulous marriage, was a very difficult missionary companion. <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. He learned more about marriage and compromise. And communication, and communication, probably. exactly, from that. And so I just want to be inclusive. Yeah. Because Latter-day Saint women are beloved of our Father in Heaven, and He has a purpose for them. Mm -hmm. Well, and it is, you mentioned, it's a discussion because there are so many variables within Absolutely. marriage, families. And I appreciate that you've shared that you're kind of a non-traditional <laughs> woman. You've had these experiences where you've gone to school later in life, but you also went earlier in life. When you were married, your husband was older. 
you adopted children. You went through that experience of infertility. And then also now starting your career later, I feel like this might be an important topic of identity. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that our listeners can feel their just inherent self-worth as children of God. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's not attached to whether they're married or not, whether their marriage is going well or not, you know, whether they feel Uh successful in that. So maybe you can just speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, This idea of identity in the church, whether we feel like we're in more traditional role or non-traditional role. One of the blessings of my life, and I would say it's an advantage, is that I have a father who I adore, and I grew up feeling valued by him. And that made it easy for me to understand that I am loved and valued by my Father in heaven. If I could just share an experience, maybe this is a little bit too personal. With infertility often comes miscarriage. And my last miscarriage was particularly painful for me. I had reached the end of my endurance of how long can I keep trying this? I had all three of my children. Mm -hmm. And I just felt a little fragile emotionally. And I just prayed to feel okay about being done. And sometimes you just need that. Mm -hmm. And I just said, can I please feel peace about this? I just need Mm -hmm. to heal. And and over a period of of six or eight months, I experienced that. And it was wonderful. And then I got this prompting that there was another child. And I just went, oh. (laughs) I just said, Heavenly Father, if there's another baby, you're going to have to strike me pregnant because I can't go back to the clinic. And a month later, I was pregnant. And it was just miraculous. At 10 weeks, I miscarried. And it was a pretty big faith crisis for me because I just felt a little bit, I'm being very personal, maybe I shouldn't, but I just felt kind of set up and really, really wrestled it. Again, just a personal insight. At the time, my father, who is Elder J. Richard Clark of the uh, Emeritus of the 70, was at church headquarters. And I believe at the time he was called to the presiding bishopric. I think by this time he was one of the seven presidents of the 70. And I got a letter from him in the midst of this, and and as I was struggling, you know, here came this letter on church letterhead. And I looked at that, and I thought, wow. And he just expressed his love for me and how deserving I was of the Lord's blessings. But what struck me was the beginning of the letter he started with, you've been on my mind a lot. And I remember reading that line and looking at the letterhead thinking, you've got, at that time, eight million people on your mind, and I'm on your mind? And almost immediately, I had this strong impression that that was but a type of a message from my Father in Heaven, that with the numberless children that my Father in Heaven has, I was on His mind. And He was also grieving for me. That was mind-blowing for me, Mm -hmm. because I thought, well, He knows who we are and where we're going, and this is all going to be okay. I don't know why it surprised me, because when the Savior came to Lazarus, and wept. He didn't weep because Lazarus died. He wept because Mary and Martha were grieving, and mm-hmm. he loved them. Mm-hmm. And even though he knew, I'm going to be raising Lazarus from the dead, this mm-hmm. is not an issue, his heart reached out to Mary and Martha for their grief. And that's what I experienced. That probably has been the most profound experience in terms of my worth and my identity, that I am a beloved daughter of my Father in heaven. I am valued by him, and he has a mission for me that was very, very healing for me. And that has been very sustaining. Before we adopted our first child, again, that was my journey of faith. The journeys of faith come when there's not an obvious explanation. You know, I've been worthy, I've been faithful, I deserve this, Mm -hmm. and yet I'm going through this trial, or this blessing is being withheld from me. 
I was writing in my journal one night, and I had a strong impression. The Spirit spoke to me and said, you will have the opportunity to be a mother, but that will only be one facet of your mission. And I thought, well, I thought that was the only mission for Latter-day Saint women, (laughs) for your beloved daughters in the kingdom, mothers in Israel. And it even hinted of something of a larger responsibility later in my life, which I believe now I'm seeing fulfillment of that. Mm -hmm. But it helped me to realize, you know, my mission that I've been waiting to begin, which I thought my mission is being a mother, started years ago, maybe even in high school, Mm -hmm. and recognizing that our missions are complex. Our opportunities for contribution to building the kingdom, preparing for the second coming, are complex. And wide-reaching. And wide-reaching, and often unknown to us. Often, if we will submit our hearts and consecrate our hearts, the Lord will reveal many ways that we can contribute. And I have always felt validated and valued in the opportunities that I've had because I know who I am, and I know my Father in Heaven loves me, and I know He values and needs His daughters. I love church history, and as I study the women of the Restoration— I'm convinced they were the glue of the restoration. They were absolutely the glue. And I just feel like the Lord just has us right here. You know, the women I can count on. The men I'm working on, you know, (laughs) they're awesome. But I just feel like we came with some natural gifts and talents implanted in our hearts. And one of those is compassion for our Father in Heaven's children. Again, I'm just going to share. This is not doctrine. It's just an impression that I had. Mm But I picture our mother in heaven having some real misgivings about letting us come. You know, if you've sent a child on a mission or even to school for the first day, (laughs) or a niece or a nephew that you love, you don't want them to go into the world. (laughs) And I think, how could she have ever let us go? And I envisioned this conversation where she's saying, tell me again (laughs) that they're going to be okay. How can I know? And I can just hear him saying, you can be reassured because I have planted your heart in the heart of your daughters. I have given your daughters a mother's heart. And I think that is true with all of us, if we can tap into that, regardless of whether or not we have the opportunity to parent children in this life or even to be married. Women who have touched my life, who are very dear to us, are women who have tapped into that mother's heart and are blessing our Father in Heaven's children. And we have important roles to play. I believe He has also given us executive ability He has given us the ability to make important decisions. And again, I go back to the Restoration. What were the decisions that Emma Smith was making and the other wives of the apostles and the elders of the church while they were taking care of church business or often were in jail? Mm -hmm. They were making executive decisions that were probably ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. That we don't hear about, but we can only imagine being in that situation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I believe that that is necessary. Again, my mother is an executive in our home. Mm-hmm. My dad's business required him to travel. Before he became a general authority, he traveled quite a bit. And so here we were on this working farm with cattle and horses who gave birth and got <laughs> out and <laughs> all kinds of things besides a large family. and Caused a ruckus generally. Well, yeah, yeah and, and, and she ran the show. She was the executive in our home, and mm-hmm. I believe that that is necessary. Well, and that's affirmed by President Nelson's talk, A Plea to My Sisters this list of we need women who can organize, we need women who can teach and lead. We need women in the church who can stand up for the values of the gospel and the restored church without apology. 
We need women who are courageous and without fear, women who can teach these values to their children. I had this plan to write a blog to my kids. I only got about one edition out, but the title I chose was What Your Mother Knows. And, and I love the story of the stripling warriors, but such power. Women too often defer to their husbands as, well, I didn't go on a mission, so I'm not a scriptorian. Or my husband takes care of that. How nice would that be? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's what the Lord has in mind. The, the Lord needs his daughters to be leaders mm -hmm. as well as mothers. And, and we lead in many, many arenas uh, by living the, the principles of the gospel. Mm -hmm. We've talked with the former Relief Society president, Linda Burton, on uh -huh. this podcast, and that was exactly her message. We need women who are spiritual leaders. Exactly. And that has, that's really stayed with me, and I love hearing that reinforced again in what you're sharing. And thank you so much for sharing your personal experiences mm -hmm. that are so personal and tender, but I know, I know will have a really powerful impact on those listening. I, I hope and so. And we'll, we'll help them feel heard, I think, and seen. Some of these are, are sacred to me. But I have found that at times they resonate where they're needed. I hope mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. Sherilyn, one of the things that you talked about is establishing guiding principles for your marriage and these values that you can build on together and kind of fall back on um, when times get hard. And one of the biggest questions that we're aware of and that we hear is that people have spouses who lose their faith or who maybe have had a different faith from the beginning. We would love to know, what would you say to these women when they're wondering how they can save their marriages and how they can preserve their own faith in the midst of having different values than your spouse? Sure. I, I appreciate that question. You know what? Again, just a caution. I, I'm thinking, you know, people who are listening to this are thinking, oh, that sounds very ideal, but that's not the real world that we live in. And, and we do need to start with the ideals. But we live in a very difficult world. A fallen world. A, a right? very yeah. fallen mm -hmm. world. And the adversary is out to destroy marriage. We know that. He's out to destroy women. He's out to destroy faith. He's out to destroy marriage. The reality is the world that we're living in, we're in the midst of a battle. We're in the midst of a war against the adversary, and nothing is being withheld. He has brought out his big guns, and among those are faith, addiction, pornography. We have to talk about these things that are attacking marriage. Mm -hmm. And so I recognize that there is a great deal of heartache of the unanswerables, the difficult things that come into a marriage, and how does a woman navigate those issues? And, and I also want to indicate that there are deal breakers, I will say that, and one of those is abuse, an abuse of marriage, a marriage that endangers uh, spirituality, that endangers a woman's sense of themselves, their ability to stand on their own with their identity intact, their self-esteem intact. Those are things that are serious. And so I don't want to suggest that divorce is never okay. I'm just saying that it, it was never the original plan. Mm -hmm. A consumer marriage was never the plan. But there are times when there just simply is no alternative. And for safety, when it becomes an issue of safety mm -hmm. for the woman, both physically and spiritually, then that has to be considered. The turbulent times that we are living in today have raised a lot of questions, and some of them are unanswerable. And as I said, the faith sometimes becomes the casualty of those. What does a woman do or a spouse, a husband or a wife, when a spouse loses their faith or loses their way? First of all, I would say don't panic. Mm. Recognize that, that this may not be a solid state. It might be a period of time. A journey. Almost. A journey, mm -hmm. exactly. And so to have respect you know, that individual path that each is going on, one may be vulnerable, one may not. 
but have respect that the struggle is real. It doesn't mean, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I, my guarantee has expired of a perfect marriage because <laughs> this was never on my plan. And, and honestly, that's one of the common things that I hear with all kinds of things, infidelity, loss of faith, whatever it is. This is not the marriage I had planned. This is not the man, the woman that I thought I was married sure. to. Mm-hmm. But recognizing that disillusionment, mm-hmm. exactly. We've got to go through an individual struggle at times in our own journey of faith. And so a commitment again that I'm going to support you through this, but I'm going to maintain my solid ground. Mm-hmm. I've got to stand the solid ground of my faith. But I can validate that this is real for you and I'm here for you, and I'll support you Mm -hmm. in whatever you need. But let's identify the common values that we still find, that we still share, exactly. We still share kindness, civility, the things for our children. Mm -hmm. Find that common ground and allow your spouse to go through that period of time. If a spouse starts demanding, demeaning, belittling, failing to respect the values and the faith of the other spouse. And that's challenging. That's something that you have to look at very carefully. But that has to be protected. But the couples that I have seen navigate this the most successfully are those where the spouse who retains their faith can let that belong to their partner. That is your place. It doesn't have to define my place. Mm -hmm. And I will support you as long as you need me to. Mm -hmm. And I have seen wonderful success in that, whether it's a child or a spouse. Yeah, those principles principles apply, apply, that respect. Mm -hmm. I will be here for as long as you need me, as long as the marriage is being protected and respected. But don't jump in too quickly to draw a conclusion or make a judgment about how this is going to turn out. Ooh, such great practical, tangible suggestions Mm -hmm. and ideas of things that we can apply in that situation. Thank you. That's going to be really valuable. It's a reality. And I would say the same is true of other things. Some things that feel a little bit more personal, like pornography addiction. Mm-hmm. I'll just generalize and say a wife who discovers that her husband or her husband has disclosed that he has a struggle with pornography. It's very difficult for them to understand that predated her in the relationship. Most often, this came long before you came into this. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Your husband has fallen into a tar pit. You can stand on the side and yell at him for being so stupid. You know, how could you be so stupid not to see that? How could you be so inconsiderate as to get close to the edge? The point of it is he's in the tar pit and he needs help to get out. And if the husband is willing to address the problem and is seeking to change as long as it takes, this is not a quick fix. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to go the journey with your husband and help him through that, you're the most significant player in that. Mm -hmm. Now, if he will not seek to change, if he will not stop having affairs and being unfaithful, then that's another issue. Mm -hmm. But wives are very quick to be judgmental and say, you're not the man I I thought. Mm -hmm. It hurts. It feels very personal. Mm -hmm. But it has nothing to do with what she thinks it does. The whole issue of pornography is very complex. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you bring this up. This is another big question that we see women asking. I would love to spend Mm -hmm. a whole episode or more talking about that. So I'm glad that you raised that. I would say the same about infidelity. A husband who is remorseful is worth investing in. But it's, it's, again, one of those things. It's going to take time. And that's an example of where you would benefit from professional intervention, just to help understand the dynamics of that. Because it is very damaging. The marriage is injured. The wife is injured. The husband is injured. And forgiveness alone does not heal that. Healing takes time. Yeah. 
So Sherilyn, if, if you could speak to someone who is struggling or just feeling like, I need help, what would you say to them? Well, first of all, I would say it addresses all of mental health, behavioral health. It is not a character flaw if you need help with emotional or, or behavioral health issues, whether it's relationships or mental health or addiction or whatever it might be. You know, we don't have any problem going to see a doctor if we hurt someplace. Mm-hmm. If our relationships hurt, if our hearts hurt, we feel like, you know, we should be tough and we should be able to break through this. I remember many years ago, and it was probably when I was wrestling those little kids, my uh, gynecologist actually said, I think you're depressed. And I said, I'm not depressed. My family doesn't get depressed. We're pioneer stock. We don't get depressed. <laughs> and he insisted, and uh, I went on a short-term antidepressant, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. But we kind of have this attitude. Well, we don't do counseling. Yes, yeah. We're you know we're strong. We're pioneers. Mm-hmm. Believe me, if family services had been on the track, <laughs> <laughs> they would have been busy. <laughs> if they had been in winter quarters. <laughs> and so there's a misunderstanding about what it means when you need help. I would say, you know, part of your strategic plan ought to be evaluating your marriage, evaluating your emotional state. How are we doing? Do we have enough resources? Are our home remedies working or do we need more? Mm -hmm. And there are a variety of resources that can be available. I think the key is to get on the same page as much as possible. That's not always possible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have one spouse who is more motivated than the other. One one feels more shame Mm -hmm. than the other. Mm -hmm. We have a number of resources that are web-based on the church website uh, under the Life Help page. Mm -hmm. We have a Strengthening Marriage and a Strengthening Parent course, and the materials are available online. Those Mm -hmm. are being updated and, and revised, those. But, but those mm-hmm. are those absolutely, exactly. Much of marriage counseling is education. Mm-hmm. Much of it is just learning the tools to work through conflict, to learn to communicate better, to be able to identify those values. And so if you go into marriage counseling with, we love each other, but we need tools. Yes. We need yeah. tools mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. make this better. Or we're broken and we need help to fix our mm-hmm. broken places. Mm-hmm. I am absolutely convinced that the war chapters in the Book of Mormon are all about marriage. Um, <laughs> as I read those, and, and they're very interesting to read, but I always wonder why are we taking up so much space? And my takeaway, and I've shared this with couples where infidelity is the issue, When the Lamanites attacked, it was a great opportunity for the Nephites to discover where their weaknesses were. Hmm. Where are your vulnerable places? And so they would attack their weak cities. But the benefit was, okay, now we know where the weaknesses are. We can rebuild them. And then when the Lamanites came again, they were so fortified that those weak places were stronger than before. Hmm. And and so couples can take that. That's a really interesting take on that. Such a great insight. Mm -hmm. Well, and instead of saying we're broken and we're irreparable— Rather, okay, so now we like know we we're lost the war. We we're lost done. the war. Pack <laughs> yeah, it in, go yeah. home. Well, and it's sort of reframing effort. You know, we know, mm-hmm. and our church leaders teach us that marriage requires effort. And it's like, well, maybe part of that effort is education. Maybe part of that effort is working to repair those broken parts and those weak Absolutely. parts. It's interesting what a parent will do for a child. You know, they will pull out all the stops counseling, whatever kind of intervention might help. But when it comes to their marriage, it almost feels too personal and too much like they failed. Hmm. For me, it's always remembering you're just an intern. <laughs> you've never it's done okay in all eternity. Yeah. You've never done marriage before. Of course it's hard. And it's a divine institution, but we are not we are not, not divine, divine beings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's heartbreaking, but you kind of have to work through personal stuff sometimes and recognize that this is also part of the journey. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need a good coach. You need someone who can provide some models that you can use. 
Family services and the church in general, of course, are very committed to principles of self-reliance, and and that includes emotional Mm self-reliance. And so counseling isn't necessarily a crutch that you're going to use the rest of your life. It's an opportunity to get tools and to learn how to use them so that you can face the challenges that are going to continue to come in your life, whether it's mental health or emotional health, addictions or marriage and and other relationships. Mm -hmm. It's how can we fortify ourselves with the tools to get through? How can we learn to forgive? How can we learn to heal the hurts to get through this? You've mentioned these tools to learn emotional resilience, and that is one of the self-reliance courses that the church offers, so we can link to that as well. And that's something listeners can pursue at the local level with their local church unit. I think a question that I hear asked often or that I just see is, who do I go to? Do we go to a church leader? Do we go to a therapist? Can we see a therapist who isn't a member of the church? What would you say to those questions? Those are all good questions. Your bishop is continuity of care. Can I just say that? You will always have a bishop. And the bishop's role is to help connect you to resources and services. Also, he's absolutely in your corner. And so if there are issues relative to worthiness, he needs to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. He needs to know, particularly if it's something like infidelity and addiction, but even to say, we're struggling with our marriage. Mm -hmm. Those covenants are critical. And so helping to preserve and protect those covenants are important to your bishop. It's nice to have a spiritual leader who who you know is always going to support you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You will always have a bishop. The first part of our guiding purpose states we support leaders in helping members to overcome obstacles. And so our number one role in family services is to consult with bishops and to help them be aware of the best resources. Mm -hmm. Some are going to be in family services. Some are going to be in the community. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily training them as a counselor, because that's not what a bishop is. Exactly. But helping bishops know if someone comes to you and has these questions, has these concerns, here's where you can send them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So choosing a good counselor, I would say, number one, a counselor who will align with your values. A counselor who, even if they are not a member of your church, will they respect your values? Mm -hmm. Will they support you in that? And I actually had a couple who are Catholic, and we had a great experience together. I mean, they weren't even actually even— You have shared values. You have shared values, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I could ask, what role does faith play in your life? Mm -hmm. And so then we, we were able to tie to that. An individual, a couple, needs to be wise as consumers. If it doesn't feel right, if you feel like they're not taking you to the right place, you should be the first one to say, this is not working. Mm -hmm. But Family Services has counselors all over the country. The pandemic has given us an opportunity to strengthen our teletherapy skills. And so surprisingly, marriage counseling works very well with teletherapy. It's surprisingly well. And couples report this work just as well. Some are having sessions where the husband's a trucker and he's doing the session as he's yeah, going across the country in his truck. It facilitates opportunities that wouldn't be there otherwise. Exactly. I can put my kids down and then we can have a session. And so we are adapting as we never have before. I mentioned the online resources are a good place to start, but look for a counselor who is licensed, is using models that are consistent and in alignment with gospel principles. I've told my staff, if you did a study and went through the scriptures, you would find some of our favorite models, mm-hmm. our interventions in the scriptures, because the Savior is the author of all truth. Of all Definitely. truth. Yes. Exactly. And there are some excellent that. people in the community that are not of our faith who have developed models and interventions. They're absolutely in alignment. This is so good. I know. This is not going to be, like, but this a... is so good. <laughs> we need to have a part two, I think. <laughs> yes. So useful. <laughs> so useful. But we would love to just know, what else would you say to the women in the church or to the listeners of this podcast? First of all, I would say you are amazing, even when you don't think you are. Women that I counsel have a tendency to be perfectionistic. They measure themselves against the ideal. 
I will never forget President Boy K. Packer actually lived in my stake, and he addressed the women at a stake relief society function once, and I will never forget it because I was a young mom, and he said, you young mothers who are raising your children, you don't have to can fruit and do genealogy <laughs> and grow a garden all at the same time. <laughs> and I think sometimes we receive so much good information that it can be discouraging, and women have a tendency to burn out. Mm-hmm. In feel an overwhelmed. And feel mm-hmm. overwhelmed. I would just say, do the best that you can, and, and you are amazing. I have learned that children are very forgiving. You know, and I have taught my children, you are my practice kids. Um, (laughs) That's all I got. (laughs) Exactly. So we'll get it right the second time. And if you're loving and honest and open, they're generally pretty forgiving. I would say probably the most important thing is to absolutely hang on to that iron rod of the gospel and gospel principles. We are in mists of darkness today. There are many questions that are swirling about us in social media that we simply cannot answer. And so cling to what you do know. It is so important that we be women and men of faith and trusting that. I don't know the answer to that, but I know the answer to this, and that is I am a beloved daughter or son of Father in Heaven who is aware of me, and He's in charge. Mm -hmm. He is in charge, and things are going to work out. We may not see it all happen, but it's so important that we be grounded in the doctrines and the principles of the gospel as never before. As never before, don't get your information from the internet. Don't be dependent on a husband who served a mission. Be responsible for your own gospel study and your own knowledge and your own faith. It has never been more important. Your impact and your reach will go beyond what you can imagine as teachers and moms and aunts and sisters and wives. That, I believe, is our mission that our Father in Heaven has given to us. If we will prepare ourselves, He will assign us a mission that will fulfill us in every way that we can imagine. Sherilyn, thank you so much. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. I love being with you. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. As a reminder, we have new episodes released every week, and we hope you'll continue to tune in and share the episodes with your family and friends. We have been so grateful to hear from so many listeners via email and on Apple Podcast Reviews, and we hope you'll continue to share your thoughts and feedback. Feel free to contact us at podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org with any suggestions for topics or guests. We also want to make sure our listeners are aware that the podcast is available just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. So in addition to being on the church's website, it's also available on the Gospel Library app, the Saints Channel mobile app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, really anywhere that you can get a podcast. So tune in, subscribe, and please continue to share these voices and stories of women of faith with your friends and family. Finally, we'd like to thank our wonderful editor, Kurt Dahl, and our producer, Matthew Mangum, and the many others who support this podcast. And until next week, I'm Carly Guyman. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for listening. Thank you.